Hello, everyone. <laughs> I'm Olga Klinkova. I'm uh, coming here from Moffitt, and I'm here to talk to you guys about infections uh, of the CSF shunts and other CNS devices. All right, and uh, here is briefly the objectives for my lecture. We're going to talk briefly about various type of devices that you can encounter in your practice, um, just to get familiar with. We're going to talk about risk factors for CSF device associated infections. We'll touch base on uh, pathogenesis microbiology. We'll talk about clinical presentation diagnosis. And uh, the very last uh, section, we'll talk about uh, the treatment and prophylaxis of uh, CNS infection associated infections. So let's uh, start with uh, the first uh, portion. As you might know already, uh, CSF shunt devices, they are divided into internalized devices and externalized devices. The most common type of internalized shunt device that you would see would be a ventricular peritoneal shunt, which is very frequently referred as a VPS. The most common type of externalized uh, shunt device that you would see is an EVD or uh, external ventricular device. And uh, you would see it frequently in places such as neuroscience ICU um, or just a regular ICU with acute neurosurgical patient. They are used primarily for the neurosurgical treatment of hydrocephalus and uh, they work by drainage of excessive CSF fluid into the other body cavity. And uh, so what happens, the fluid drains into the third space and uh, there it gets reabsorbed. So basically you create a CSF fluid diversion. There are some other internalized uh, shunt types that you may see in your clinical practice. So aside from the VPS shunt that I just mentioned, um, very rarely you would see a patient with a ventricular pleural shunt or ventricular atrial shunt. And the idea is the same, is that the proximal end, uh, it starts in the ventricle, but the distal end, instead of peritoneal space, it would end up either in the pleural space, uh, in the example of a ventricular pleural device, or actually the atrium. Um, um, in the presence of ventricular atrial shunt. So this is just a picture of uh, the ventricular peritoneal shunt. So you guys have an idea and you see the distal end uh, um, terminates in the ventricle, uh, actually the proximal end, and the distal end goes all the way down and terminates in the peritoneal cavity. Uh, and uh, typically there is also a, a pressure regulating valve that is just placed outside uh, the skull. Okay, And uh, that's how external ventricular drain would look like. And let's say if you guys rotate um, through TGH, you would see a lot of this on 5K neuroscience unit. So external ventricular device most commonly is used for the management of acute hydrocephalus, but also you can keep it in place for measuring your uh, intracranial pressures or ICP. 
uh, on uh, my end uh, at Moffitt, uh, sometimes we see patients with the Amaya reservoir. So that would be an example uh, of an external ventricular device. And uh, it is typically used for chemotherapy administration, but can be used for antibiotic administration as well. And uh, also can be used for CSF aspiration and sampling. So typically you would see it in the patients either with uh, metastatic malignancies, for example, metastatic brain cancers, or patients uh, with uh, leukemias uh, uh, with a CNS lymphoma, the CNS lymphoma involvement, for example, ALL patients. Uh, let's talk briefly about the risk factors for VP shunt associated infections. So specifically for the VP shunt, the average infection rate ranges between 5 to 15%, and the rule to remember it's about 6% per procedure. It is most likely diagnosed during initial months after the placement of VP shunt, and 90% uh, of infections, so the majority of them, actually occur within 30 days of the shunt placement. The patient-specific risk factors that you should be aware of that would put the patients uh, at higher risk for such infections would be previous infection um, of the shunts, uh, frequent shunt revisions, the rule is more than three, uh, and then certain causes of hydrocephalus that would put you at higher risk um, for VP shunt infection. Uh, those causes would be either purulent meningitis or another example would be um, hemorrhage, intraventricular hemorrhage. Talking about external ventricular devices and external ICP monitors, their average infection rate is about 8%, but can go all the way up to 30%, almost 30%. There are also patient-specific risk factors that we should be aware of. So the patients that uh, had that type of a shunt placed for intraventricular hemorrhages, subarachnoid hemorrhages, uh, they are at higher risk for infections, um, as well as patients with open skull fractures, patients with basilar skull fractures with CSF leak, uh, presence of systemic infection, or a prolonged uh, duration of catheter in place. And I will specifically mention this part. The general rule is that um, the patients that have EVD in place that remains in place for more than five days are considered at higher risk um, for acquiring EVD associated infection. So there is a direct proportional relationship. The longer the drain remains in place, the higher the risk of infection. Let's talk about uh, microbiology. So I divided it um, uh, in two portions. So I <coughs> I'm going to mention the microbiology specifically for um, ventricular peritoneal shunts and the EVDs. So if you look for both types, coag-negative staph is actually the most common pathogen in both of the uh, shunt types. Uh, this is followed by staph aureus, 
Um, and then that's where you would see the difference. So number three um, for ventricular peritoneal shunts would be your low pathogenicity organisms such as diphtheroids or P. acnes. Uh, for EVDs, the third most common pathogen would be Enterobacteria C. And uh, I have an illustration of that too. So there was a recent study which was published uh, uh, from um, uh, the UK and Ireland. Uh, they had um, a prospective multicenter study of EVD-associated infections. Uh, <clears throat> this study had uh, 46 um, uh, total uh, EVD-related infections that they analyzed, and the cultures were positive in 25 uh, <clears throat> of those patients. And as you can see on this graph, the coag-negative staph was, uh, again, the most common pathogen isolated in uh, this study, followed by staph aureus, followed by enterobacteriaceae organisms. So talking about the pathogenesis um, of uh, ventricular uh, peritoneal shunts, uh, there are four main mechanisms uh, how this infection uh, can occur. And the most common one, and uh, I already mentioned it, the most common one is that the infection occurs at the time of the surgery. So what typically happens, the shunt, uh, the infection gets introduced during surgery and shunt becomes colonized and the infection occurs later. The second most common mechanism is a retrograde infection from the distal end of the shunt. For example, um, if you have a patient uh, with a, either bowel perforation or uh, SBP, the distal end of the shunt can become infected and then the infection spreads uh, through the whole shunt and uh, causes uh, a CNS infection as well by this mechanism. The third mechanism is a skin or catheter penetration and this can occur uh, in two cases. Either the infection can be introduced during sampling of the shunt or there is a poor skin healing overlying the shunt, uh, and uh, that's how the infection gets introduced. Uh, hematogenous seeding can occur as well. Most commonly, it would happen in the presence of ventricular atrial shunt, but again, even remote shunts can get infected um, in the settings of uh, bacteremia. And also, it's important rem to remember that even patients with uh, VP, VP shunts or other shunts sometimes get community-acquired meningitis as well. So keep that in mind. And uh, this is just a, uh, the graph illustrating what I just mentioned. Um, so as we said, the most common mechanism of uh, infection acquisition is at the time of the surgery. Uh, when the bacteria starts adhering to the shunt, um, causing the biofilm formation. And uh, after that, uh, the bacteria would have time to accumulate and proliferate. And uh, then some sort of a trigger occurs, the detachment and the release of bacteria from the biofilm occurs, causing the, the clinical infection. And this is just uh, uh, the picture illustrating what I just said.
And now let's talk about the clinical presentation and laboratory diagnosis. So uh, the clinical presentation of shunt-associated infections uh, is actually very interesting um, because when we think about it, most commonly we have a tendency to think about, okay, we have a CSF uh, catheter in place, so the infection should cause a CNS infection, and this is correct. But CNS-related signs would be, would be due to the proximal end of the shunt signs. And sometimes we forget that those patients can also get a distal end of the shunt signs as well. Um, so most commonly, the patient with the shunt infections would have CNS-related signs such as fever, headaches, altered mental status, erythema or pain over the shunt tubing. So I think we're very good about obtaining, um, you know, those um, uh, signs. But also remember that the distal end of the uh, shunt signs uh, could be symptoms of uh, peritonitis, abdominal pain, and even ileus. So it's very important to remember that if you have a patient with a uh, VP shunt uh, who exhibits signs of peritonitis and you have uh, no further explanation for his peritonitis, the symptoms could be due to the shunt infection and uh, it, could, it should be thoroughly evaluated. For the patients that have uh, EVD in place, sometimes the clinical diagnosis can be very tricky because uh, most of the patients with EVD are already very sick when we see them. So most of those patients are intubated, uptunded, and the history is very limited. Um, based on the literature, it was shown that the new fever in association with the CSF pleocytosis was most reliable for the diagnosis of uh, EVD-associated infection. But also in the patients that um, are awake, new or worsening onset of altered mental status was also shown to be associated with a EVD-associated shunt infection if uh, the shunt was in place. And uh, let's talk about the laboratory diagnosis um, of uh, such infections. When we suspect uh, that a, a patient with a VP shunt uh, has a, an associated infection, uh, the workup would be pretty similar to the patient with a suspected uh, CNS infection, such as meningitis encephalitis. So as a general workup, those patients uh, would get standard uh, blood work, including blood cultures, and then the CSF analysis should be obtained ideally before antibiotics are started. The CSF fluid should be sent again for standard um, workup, which would be cell count, differential, protein, glucose, gram stain, uh, and uh, uh, standard cultures. Very uh, commonly, what would be when you request the CNSF analysis uh, to be obtained from such patients, the neurosurgeon would um, tell you to obtain lumbar puncture first mm -hmm. because uh, as a general rule, 
they do not um, like to access the shunt. Uh, if the diagnosis of, um, if uh, I think uh, <coughs> the suspicion for infection is very low because every time you access the shunt, you potentially can introduce infection into the shunt. Uh, however, if you have a strong suspicion for C uh, VP shunt associated infection and uh, the initial CSF analysis uh, did not yield um, uh, much information, it's very reasonable to ask neurosurgeon to perform a direct aspiration of a CSF through the shunt. So just something to keep in mind. And uh, some other points to keep in mind that negative gram uh, stain does not rule out infection. And uh, based on the studies, uh, uh, it was positive only in about 71% of the cases. And uh, something else which I think is very important, when you evaluate the patient uh, with a suspected VP shunt infection, uh, and uh, especially if the clinical suspicion was uh, high, but uh, initially cultures remained negative at the end of a 48 hours period, uh, it is recommended that you ask microbiology lab to hold those cultures in the lab for a total of 10 days uh, to recover slow growing bacteria such as P. acnes. And you have to tell them specifically what potentially you're looking for. And uh, these are just some pearls that uh, I think uh, some of them I already mentioned. Um, uh, but something to remember, number one, that the culture is usually positive in patients with infected devices. Uh, culture, if you have just a culture positive broth, uh, you need to look at the presentation and prior administ antibiotic administration. Uh, negative culture does not rule out infection 100%. And uh, CSF culture may require several days or even weeks of incubation. And uh, one particular scenario that um, I was asked uh, actually a few times when uh, I, was take care of, uh, I was taking care of such patients. Um, you have a patient with a CSF dry, drain malfunction but no signs suggestive of CSF infection. Um, sometimes these patients uh, undergo a shunt removal um, or the CSF analysis um, is obtained uh, to evaluate for possible infection. And uh, what, what do you do if the culture become positive in the absence of a clinical signs of infection? So this always becomes tricky and um, the answer is yes, it could be a contaminant, but uh, infection should be considered and in most of the cases, repeat CSF analysis, uh, if possible, should be obtained. So how do we make a diagnosis of uh, VP shunt associated infection? Uh, it could be very tricky, actually. If you look at the literature um, on the definition of um, this particular infection, so either it's defined by positive CSF culture or um, the combination of uh, clinica uh, laboratory signs that um, as indicated in the graph on the right. However, as I mentioned, uh, sometimes you would have an isolated positive culture, 
without clinical signs of infection. And that's when particularly the diagnosis becomes uh, uh, extremely challenging. So the general rule is that if um, the patient undergoes CSF shunt infection, if the infection is suspected, uh, the culture of the shunt and the drain should be obtained. Um, but if uh, the shunt was removed for other reason uh, rather than infection, the shunt should not be cultured. So some new definitions of infection of uh, EVD-related infections uh, came up recently. Um, and uh, it could be much more helpful uh, to look at this. Uh, specifically for EVD-related infection, the infection is defined as a single or multiple positive CSF culture with CSF pleocytosis or low glucose or increasing uh, cell count and clinical symptoms suspicious for ventriculitis or meningitis. So how this definition can help you, if you look, um, this is a combined diagnosis. It's not only a positive culture, you should have something else, either a laboratory uh, findings or clinical findings uh, to say that this is infection, right? And uh, let's talk about the management uh, and the treatment of um, device-associated infections. Uh, for your reference, um, if you need a uh, for the uh, gui guidance, uh, you will be looking at 2017 IDSA document uh, uh, on um, uh, guidelines for healthcare associated ventriculitis and meningitis. So that's where you would find uh, your information on how to treat, uh, the duration of therapy, and so forth. The principle of management um, of uh, CNS uh, device associated infections. Uh, it basically consists of four um, parts. Number one is the complete removal of the device should be always considered if patient um, can undergo um, such surgery. Antibiotic therapy, um, a lot of patients that would undergo a removal of the device would require some sort of an external drainage um, of the CSF fluid or diversion and then subsequent shunt uh, replacement once uh, CSF is uh, sterile. So typically it happens either a couple of weeks later or sometimes even months later, depending on um, what we isolate and how the patient is doing. So what, what's important to remember is that um, um, how it was showed uh, in the studies um, that complete removal of the shunt system with a temporary external drainage and antibiotic therapy was associated with the best success rate. So as you can see um, um, on the lower part of the slides. So based on the study, um, it was actually published back in um, 1981. So it is old, but you can see the numbers. As I said, the patients that undergo shunt removal followed by external drainage and antibiotic therapy, the success rate of cure was very high, uh, about 95%. And look at the lower uh, portion as well. The patient that had their shunt retained but still completed a full antibiotic course, 
um, had only 35% um, of the cure rate uh, for, their, for their infections. So extremely, extremely low. Um, for the antibiotic selection, we use the same principles as for um, acute bacterial meningitis. Antibiotics must penetrate CSF uh, very well, and you must achieve an adequate um, CNS uh, uh, antibiotic concentration. Uh, based on the guidelines, initial regimen always must include anti-MRSA and anti-pseudomonal coverage. So for the empiric antibiotic therapy, uh, you can use uh, three combinations. And I would say that the most, most commonly we use uh, uh, vancomycin plus cefepime or vancomycin plus ceftazidime. Uh, you can use vancomycin plus meropenem as an alternative. Um, typically, we uh, reserve it for the patients um, uh, either uh, with uh, prior histories uh, of uh, M MDRO infections or severe uh, penicillin allergy. Uh, for the patients uh, with uh, uh, beta-lactam allergies, as I said, you potentially can use vancomycin and meropenem. The other two combinations that the guidelines mentioned would be either vancomycin uh, plus astrianum or vancomycin plus ciprofloxacin. This document uh, has a, um, a table um, on the, uh, the targeted antibiotic therapy once you identify the organism. And that's what I included in this slide. Did you guys notice you didn't mention Sozin on the empiric therapy? You guys know why? Sozin is actually the most common one. Yeah. Yeah. Poor CNS concentration. <laughs> That, that's that's true, yes. Um, unfortunately, not in, in this population, yes. Uh, sometimes the question um, arises, should we use uh, intraventricular antibiotic therapy uh, for such patients? And the general rule is that uh, if the patient is responding well to the current antibiotic therapy, um, you're not dealing with um, uh, the multidrug-resistant pathogen or the pathogen that um, is difficult to clear. Um, typically, just a systemic antibiotics uh, would be sufficient. However, uh, there are two or three situations when you may consider an addition of intraventricular antibiotic therapy. And uh, those situations would be either there is a failure of parenteral antibiotic to sterilize CSF, uh, patient responding poorly to systemic antibiotics, or there is a presence of highly resistant organism which is susceptible only to antibiotics with poor CNS penetration. And uh, one example um, would be a patient with uh, acinetobacter meningitis. Uh, um, I remember only two cases, and both cases were actually were treated with uh, uh, intraventricular antibiotic therapy. In the patients when the shunt device cannot be removed for whichever reason, uh, intraventricular antibiotic therapy can be considered as well. 
the antibiotics that you would use uh, for this particular route, they're actually limited. Um, <coughs> there is a literature on using vancomycin, gentamicin, and colistin. You'll definitely have to consult with uh, infectious disease pharmacist for uh, the dosing. Uh, something to remember is that the uh, penicillin and cephalosporin antibiotics uh, are not used for intraventricular antibiotic therapy. Uh, due to significant neurotoxicity um, uh, with uh, this particular route of administration. Okay, the next question. For how long do we treat um, uh, these patients? And the answer is, is um, it really depends on the isolated pathogen, how soon you are able to clear CSF after device removal and your CSF findings. Um, in terms of the pathogens, if you are dealing with uh, what we call low pathogenicity organisms such as coag-negative staph uh, or P. acnes, uh, the treatment potentially um, can be uh, as short as um, uh, just 10 to 14 days. Uh, for more virulent pathogens uh, such as uh, staph aureus or gram-negative uh, rods, uh, the treatment uh, tends to be prolonged. Uh, typically, we would go at least for 14 to 21 days um, um, after the <coughs> the treatment was uh, after the treatment was started. Uh, very often, the the question comes up: When is it safe? to reinsert the new shunt. And uh, it again goes back to which pathogens were isolated, what were your CSF findings, and how soon CSF can be cleared. I will just go over one example. Let's say if you have uh, a patient with a P. acnes um, VPS-associated infection, and on the presentation, uh, um, you have a very minimal pleocytosis and the culture is cleared uh, very quickly. Um, the, the shunt can be placed uh, uh, as early uh, as um, uh, on the third day if the culture remains negative uh, uh, at 48 hours. So uh, this was a significant shift in thinking. Um, in this document because um, in the past we uh, used to treat those patients for a very long time and uh, uh, postpone uh, a new shunt placement for a significant number of days or even weeks. Uh, however, uh, now we know that um, especially if you have a patient with an external ventricular device in place, those patients are at higher risk for EVD-associated ventriculitis. Um, uh, again, the longer catheter remains the, in place, uh, the higher risk of uh, such infection. Uh, and that's exactly what I just mentioned. Uh, the timing of device reimplantation would depend on isolated organism, the severity of presentation and improvement of CSF parameters and sterilization of your cultures. And uh, I will briefly touch base on the antimicrobial prophylaxis. 
So the CSF uh, shunting procedures um, uh, fall under clean procedures in neurosurgery. Based on the prior literature, uh, it was shown that antibiotic prophylaxis would result in significantly lower rate uh, of um, uh, post-surgical infections in such patients. Your standard antibiotic that you would use in such a, a situation would be cefazolin, uh, with the alternatives in patients with uh, penicillin allergies being either vancomycin and uh, clindamycin. Uh, the typical duration uh, uh, is um, a single dose uh, or up to 24 hours. Uh, there are some centers that use it up to 48 hours after CSF shunting procedures. The timing is very important. The antibiotics should be administered within 30 to 60 minutes before surgical incision. Uh, specifically for the EVD or ICP uh, monitors and uh, whether prophylactic antibiotics uh, have any roles, um, again, you would look in the same document and the guidelines uh, stay um, that the pure procedural antibiotic use is generally accepted and recommended in such cases. However, prolonged uh, prophylactic antibiotics for the catheter duration is not recommended. And uh, I will show you just one study, um, which was uh, the results were published back in 2016. Uh, they analyzed 279 patients with a ICP monitors, and uh, <clears throat> they had three groups. The first group received a very narrow spectrum, the second group received broad spectrum, and uh, the third group, which was actually small, received uh, no pro uh, prophylactic antibiotics at all. Uh, what they found out is that the infection rate was about 33%. The infection rate did not differ between groups but broad-spectrum prophylaxis was associated with a shift to resistant gram-negative pathogens and subsequent infectious complications. Um, so that is tell us that, um, yes, um, before a neurosurgeon inserts an EVD, definitely go ahead and use uh, um, antibiotics um, procedurally, uh, but uh, number one, broad-spectrum antibiotics are not recommended and prolonged uh, antibiotic duration uh, for the duration of the catheter is also not recommended. The IDSA guidelines in 2017 documents also recommended um, in favor of antibiotic impregnated catheter use. And uh, I'll end here and I'll, I'll see what questions you guys might have for me. Yes. Hey, well, thanks for a great uh, presentation, um, Jamie Morano. <laughs> uh, I wanted to ask about the VA specifically has a lot of traumatic brain injuries. If you could talk yes. a little bit about your experience, because obviously meningeal signs are a little bit more difficult. Certainly there's agitation, but it's a little bit harder. Um, and I think we have maybe a lower threshold to try to sample the shunt. If you could maybe speak to your advice on approaching a patient who was not verbal um, and at baseline they have difficulty um, responding to exam, et cetera. Uh, right. Um, you know, based on my clinical experience, uh, another category of patient of such would be uh, either TBI patients or patients with uh, subarachnoid or um, 
parenchymal hemorrhages in uh, neuroscience ICU. Um, I agree with you that um, uh, mental status of those patients are extremely poor even at baseline. And it's very commonly you would not be able to use it um, to assess the patient. In uh, such cases, uh, um, new fever, um, new leukocytosis, new onset of the seizures, um, basically other signs that would um, make you think of infection obviously would count. Um, in such patients, I think uh, in the, the situation that you mentioned, the, the new onset of the fever, um, seizures, again, mental status may be poor at baseline, but worsening of the mental status up to the point that patient becomes abundant or unresponsive would be definitely of concern. Um, presence of leukocytosis, lactic acidosis, again, unexplained findings. No increased risk of sampling the shunt over baseline given the changed anatomy or would the um, We've had a lot of such situations where I worked at Tampa General. The general rule is that the neurosurgeon would always request you pursue a lumbar puncture first um, because of uh, the risk uh, of introducing of infection into the CSF. Um, even with a simple sampling of the shunt. So um, we were always asked to be uh, very cognizant of, you know, just sampling the CSF shunt um, to rule out infection. So the general rule was that um, we would obtain basic findings, uh, uh, brain imaging, and then would try to obtain uh, the lumbar puncture in such patients. Um, and uh, if the lumbar puncture did not reveal significant findings and we remained concerned for CSF shunt infections that we would again discuss with the neurosurgeons uh, and most of the times they were very approachable and uh, um, the, the shunt was accessed. Um, so that's for the VP shunt infections. For the Patients with uh, EVDs, uh, um, it's a little easier because those patients already have a device in place. Um, and again, uh, clinically wise, it's either a patient with worsening mental status, new onset of the seizures, new fevers in the patient who was relatively stable before um, in those patients, the EVD infection was definitely on the differential diagnosis. Um, it's very easy to um, request a CSF analysis from those patients. Uh, also remember that if you do the culture uh, from the EVD, you can also collect the same CSF studies such as glucose, cell count differential, and protein. And uh, typically for those patients, I think I had it in one of the slides, um, it is typically a new onset of the fever plus a pleocytosis of the CSF collected from EVD um, were associated with uh, EVD-associated infection. And I think uh, the median number of cells, it was 173. So we're not talking about just a little bit of a, 
pleocytosis because the patients, especially with intraventricular bleedings, they definitely um, could have that. Um, so more than usual pleocytosis, that out of proportion pleocytosis. up on these patients is when after you remove the shunt to, to sample the CSF fluid and look for resolution, how often do you sample? Obviously, because you're going to have to go puncture, 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 puncture. How many times do you do every two days, three days culture? Or would that be a daily occurrence? So typically what, what happens, um, I can say that there are three case scenarios that we see typically. The case scenario number one is that there is a patient that uh, comes in from the community. Uh, there is a concern for CSF shunt infection. Um, and uh, this is the patient, uh, the shunt was placed for uh, some sort of a chronic hydrocephalus, right? Typically what happens, they go to the OR, uh, they remove the shunt, um, and uh, we start them on antibiotic. Uh, most of the times those patients actually go home because their hydrocephalus was a low grade and uh, they do not require um, a temporarily uh, drainage of the CSF. Um, so typically what happens, uh, they receive a full course of antibiotics, then they return back to neurosurgery office and the lumbar puncture is repeated. Uh, and uh, once we know that it's negative, uh, the shunt can be reimplanted. The situation number two is um, when the patient uh, had a initial shunt placed uh, for some sort of an acute indication. Typically when the infection of CSF shunt occurs, those patients would require an external CSF drainage while we're treating this infection. So what typically happens, the patient uh, you know, gets admitted, goes to the OR, shunt gets removed, and the EVD gets placed. And uh, the culture is repeated every 48 hours. Um, so we are able to see when they clear this infection. Um, I know USF neurosurgery have their own protocol um, uh, based on which they sample uh, CSF of every single patient every 48, 72 hours uh, if they have EVD in place for more than five days. But you can start sampling it earlier than that, obviously. And uh, this, uh, so this, these are two scenarios. And if you have an, an infected EVD in place, uh, what typically happens, again, you remove the old EVD, the new EVD gets placed, and again, we can sam sample every 48 hours or so. Yes. Any other questions? Going back, <coughs> going back to the slide where you say the pathogens between the MPS and the EVD, I think it was in the beginning. Yes. I think the third or the fourth slide. <coughs> yes. Um, is the enterococcus um, in the EVD and not in the VP shunt? Uh, because of the that it's part of like the normal GI tract flora, and then they're not really sure to, what to make of it if it's a pathogen or, or contamination, and, or is it just can you see BP shunt infections with enterococcus? 
I'm sure you can see VP shunt infections with enterococcus because remember it terminates in your mm -hmm. peritoneal cavity. So if you have a GI uh, pathology, especially with translocation, you can definitely, yes, see uh, enterococcus. I think this is just based on the literature what was uh, like most commonly seen, okay. yes. Um, and again, with the uh, EVDs, uh, <coughs> that's what the literature showed. Uh, but again, it likely came from the skin near the catheter being colonized, uh, so forth. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, just one thing I would I, I would add. I, I always try to talk to the fellows about this. Once the VP shunt, you can comment if you mm -hmm. a different approach or you've seen different statistics. But once the VP shunt has been in for a long period of time, the incision, the uh, proximal incision has healed, their skin overlying, everything's fine, it's been fine for years, and they come in with non-specific symptoms. It is, in my experience, very unlikely that anything's coming from this proximal end, right? Once that's yes. healed, it's done. So you should sort of be focusing more on the distal mm -hmm. end Absolutely. of the at that mm -hmm. point and uh, try to figure out if the patient, there's any way that they, anything could have happened where that distal end gets affected. The neurosurgeons are pretty big on, you know, one thing that, that they look for, whether there's a cyst or a kind yes. of pseudocyst really, mm -hmm. at that distal tip when they image the patient, you know, before yes. you go in there and tap because it's a lot harder to get sampling when you're talking about the diagnosing the distal end of the BP shunt. Um, in my experience, the patients usually, even though it's sort of vague abdominal symptoms, peritoneal, it's not, it's not what, what we're used to thinking about peritoneal signs, because they mm -hmm. kind of come and go a lot. You know, it's not like they're going to have rebound. But they do have a lot of vague abdominal uh, complaints. It lasts for a while. That imaging doesn't always correlate, for, at least for me. I've had some shunts removed after begging neurosurgery for three times. The patient gets admitted three times with the same abdominal complaints and nobody, you know, but because they don't see anything on imaging, they don't right. really know. So point being, after it's been in there for a while, at least for me, you can say, mm -hmm. if your experience isn't otherwise, the, the proximal end is not much of a, it's not as much of a concern. I agree. It becomes a lot more difficult to prove I, I fully agree with you. I think the only situation would be if uh, the proximal uh, end uh, formed a biofilm mm -hmm. uh, with, which just grew up until a certain point and then something triggered and uh, <clears throat> that's how infection occurred. Um, at Tampa General Hospital about a year ago, we had a patient who actually underwent laparotomy mm -hmm. uh, before the shunt was removed. The laparotomy was for abdominal pain and uh, signs of peritonitis. Which is crazy, right? Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> so and that's what I, that's been my experience. I mean, it's, we empirically treat and they get readmitted and readmitted because neurosurgery doesn't want to touch this thing. Yes. And it's not until the third time that we finally get them to actually. So exactly, something to keep in mind. The other scenarios I've seen with that proximal end is our TBI patients who just mm -hmm. kind of start messing with that spot without, you know. With the valve, where they have the valve, yeah. Tension, but yes. that's really pretty rare. Um, and we're going to have to stop there. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you.